0: My fellow Americans and all those listening overseas, welcome back to Visiting the Presidents. I'm your host, Joe Fakash, and today we are on the road to several places throughout the South, but most notably Louisville and the home of Zachary Taylor, the 12th President of the United States. As I've done in previous episodes, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to the Season 1 episode on Zachary Taylor, titled Zachary Taylor and Montebello where we talk about his rise, his early education, his parents, And you'll get a good sense of his military career, which is going to be a huge component of Zachary Taylor's rise to the presidency. He's going to follow in the mold of George Washington, Andrew Jackson, and William Henry Harrison, and using his military service as a huge kind of gateway into getting national notoriety. And for that battleground acumen being one of the key components that gives people insight into how he would make decisions, whether or not that is a success is up to you. Now, I do also want to remind you to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com to be sharing the podcast episode and writing reviews, doing whatever you can to help get the message out. As I've said in previous episodes, there's been a lot of uptick in terms of the number of people coming to the sites and getting information from it, which I think can only really help, right? Like the more we're learning about these men and their homes, their birthplaces, and next season when we talk about gravesites and down the road museums, you know, this can be a real learning tool. And so anything you can do to help me in building that resource is very well appreciated. You can also be donating to the podcast, any of the money donated is going to help the website, help the podcast hosting, as well as future trips, books, that kind of thing and I am certainly very grateful for all who have already supported and those who are looking to make contributions. Those who have already donated to Visiting the President include Sammy and Tom Fakash, Nancy and Terry Werkamp, Debbie and Dennis Fakash, Harvey and Casey Hyman, Connie and Adam Luck, Jim and Catherine Hyman, Gail Rittenhouse, Sean and Liz Jones, Stephen Gilroy, Kurt Dion, AJ Mira, April McKenzie, Matt and Megan Hoekstetler, Caitlin Callahan, Brittany and Keith Mellon, Jim and Laurel Brayler. Eric Engartner, Patricia Argentina, Kara Steiner, Jamie and Ted Wilson, and Andrea Alexander. Thank you all so much. Now, when we had talked about Zachary Taylor in our season one episode, I talked about how up until Donald Trump, Zachary Taylor was our only president with absolutely no political experience or office prior to being elected. In Zachary's case, he had a 40-year-long military career, rising from first lieutenant and ending as Major General, and he would serve in the War of 1812, the Black Hawk War, Seminole Wars, and then, of course, culminates in the Mexican-American War, where he earned his most notoriety. He also was always moving from place to place, which we'll be talking about in looking at three of his homes, but he'll live in Kentucky, Memphis, New Orleans, Natchez, Vincennes, Minneapolis, Wisconsin, Tampa, and then Fort Jessup, Arkansas. Zachary was known for being improvisational and instinctive on the battlefield, and that he took more risks than any of the other military officials, but he's also seen as having really engendered a lot of loyalty from his soldiers and is noted for being loyal himself. Of course, Zachary's biggest exposure will come in the Mexican-American War, where he's dispatched by President James Polk to the Rio Grande in 1846, opposite of Matamoros, which is where my ancestors are from. My grandmother was born in Matamoros, and it's going to be Zachary's soldiers who are advanced upon to begin the conflict. Taylor will advance to Palo Alto and Resaca de la Palma, earning him a promotion to Major General. Taylor will then force the surrender of General Pedro de Ampudia at Monterey, and demonstrates his decency and what he thought the United States Army should stand for when he agreed to humane terms, including letting the Mexicans keep their weapons and agreeing that he would not pursue them for at least two months. When President Polk gets word of this, and this gives you another insight into our feature from last week, he's going to strip Taylor of his soldiers Of course, that's only going to incense Zachary, who nevertheless will vow to remain and do my duty no matter the circumstances. So a very noble position that he took there. Taylor will then start taking communications from Washington as suggestions rather than orders, and he'll take his remaining soldiers to Buena Vista. And despite taunting from Santa Ana, he'll stun the Mexicans, who will suffer three times the casualties of the American soldiers. Taylor will be shot at twice, with one of those shots grazing his upper arm and another hitting a button. It's going to be here where Taylor earned my favorite presidential nickname, Old Rough and Ready, and that will be the legacy that will be set from that point forward. Now, when we talked about Zachary, we again mentioned how much he moves around the country, but he always has his heart with his lovely wife, Margaret. Cue the aww. Margaret, or Peggy, Macall Smith was born in Calvert County, Maryland, in 1788 to Walter and Ann Smith. Walter was a wealthy planter and raised his daughter in finery and wealth. She was described as slender and friendly and was introduced to Lieutenant Zachary Taylor in 1809 while he visited her sister, and we've heard that from other presidents as well, when I think of John Quincy Adams and John Adams, in fact. Peggy prayed daily for her husband to be safe and promised God that she would give up all the pleasures of society if her husband returned from the war alive. Peggy dreaded when Zachary will then try to turn into a political career both for what it would do to their private life together of which there of course had been very little over the years and then what it might portend for his life and happiness and knowing that this had not been a job that ended in happiness for too many of our executives. When they do move into the executive mansion Peggy was nearly an invalid and remained in seclusion in the family quarters, rarely appearing in public outside of weekly trips to St. John's Episcopal with Zachary, and she let her daughter Betty do the entertaining. And if you're hearing a theme, you know, we talked about this with Monroe, we talked about this with Letitia Tyler, and then when we think about future First Ladies like Jane Pierce or Ida McKinley, you know, this idea of the job really putting a lot of pressure on both partners and the idea that for Margaret, she had been away from her husband so long, and so it does really add a different dimension to that as well. Peggy was frequently rumored to be in opposition to her husband's career, not all of that unfounded, and that her husband and family were ashamed of her because she was backwoods and boorish. She smoked a pipe, but all of the reports beyond that are that she was just as cultured as any of the other women of the day. And again, we've heard those kinds of insinuations about, for instance, Andrew Jackson's wife, that you know she had been from the backwoods or was somehow less than because of her behavior, and does give you a good sense of just how much more criticism there would have been for the First Lady. When Zachary dies, suddenly, Margaret will never recover, and she has to be dragged from his cold, dead body, as she kept feeling for a pulse and insisting that he would have spoken to her before he passed. Her behavior in his death and funeral will lead to rumors that she had poisoned him, and we'll be talking about that in season three. Look forward to that. Margaret's health will then deteriorate as well, and she'll die in Pascagoula, Mississippi in 1852, just two years after Zachary dies, and she'll be buried right beside him in Louisville. Zachary and Margaret will have four children to live into maturity, three daughters and one son, but they will join other presidential Couples that we've talked about where they faced loss at some of their babies' early ages. Anne McCall will marry an army surgeon, and Mary Elizabeth will marry her father's adjutant general and later serve as official hostess while Taylor was president and her mother was ill. Richard or Dick will be educated in Scotland and France before going to Harvard and graduating from Yale. Dick was a military aide to his father during the Mexican-American War and then is his private secretary as president. He will later be elected to the State Senate in Louisiana and was one of the delegates to consider Louisiana's secession from the United States, which he will be in full support of. Dick will serve in the Confederate Army, rising from colonel to lieutenant general, serving under Stonewall Jackson. He's still going to be fighting in May of 1865 after the war had ended and is reportedly the last Confederate general to lay down his weapons. His property had been confiscated during the war, and he had no money, and will turn to writing books about the Southern cause. Sarah Knox will marry Jefferson Davis, yes, that Jefferson Davis, the future president of the Confederate States. Zachary forbids his daughter from seeing Jefferson and maybe he had a good inkling here, mainly wanting his daughters to avoid the hardship of marrying a military man, probably knowing how much time he had spent away from pegging, and he even will threaten to duel with Jefferson Davis to prevent him from marrying. After they get married, they will visit one of Jefferson's family members in Louisiana, and they both contract malaria. Jefferson Davis, you will know, recovers from that bout, but Sarah will die at just 21 years old, and you can imagine the damage that does to Zachary. Back to his rising career, you might wonder, how does he get from the battlefield and all of that notoriety to the White House? And at the 1848 Whig Convention in Philadelphia, Taylor will be the perceived frontrunner from the get-go, with former speaker and three-time presidential candidate Henry Clay being right being far behind. Taylor will win the nomination on the fourth ballot, and they will choose a representative from New York, Millard Fillmore, to be nominated as his vice president. The Whig party platform will emphasize Taylor's heroism and critical thinking on the battlefield. The convention president sends Taylor a letter notifying him of his nomination, but because he had been inundated with mail from the end of the war, he'll tell his postmaster only to accept correspondence that had been paid ahead of time. So we'll actually take two attempts to tell him he's going to be the nominee for president. In the general election, Zachary Taylor's opponent was Senator Lewis Cass of Michigan. And like Taylor, Cass's presidency will be a bit of a balancing act for the nominee. Cass would straddle his party's increasingly pro-popular sovereignty rhetoric which is going to again be where they want the people to get to decide in the territories whether they want slavery or not. While Taylor was a slaveholder from the South, both of them will be towing the line on slavery's expansion. The dominant issue for this election will be the new Wilmot Proviso, which will ban slavery from any land gained during the Mexican-American War, and Cass comes out aggressively against that measure, while Taylor will say nothing, like the whole campaign. He will be very cagey about his beliefs, and the Whig Party will do a lot to keep that ambiguity in place. Whigs in both the North and South will be nervous and try to find out more about what he thinks, and he'll assure both groups that he is on their side. Again, a very difficult balancing act. Martin Van Buren will also run in this election with the new Free Soil Party, and his candidacy will siphon votes away from anti-slavery Democrats in the North. This is the first election where all states will vote on the same day, and Taylor will be able to bundle together a strong set of states in the Electoral College to win the election. I also point out the selection when I'm teaching because it's going to be one of the first with a real poster, and I always show students the poster which features Zachary Taylor on a horse from a distance, and then his photographs where up close he's a very different looking figure, and if you remember in season one where we talked about how he's a bit shorter and just has a big head, that's always how they describe him. John and Alice Durant, who wrote a book called The Presidents of the United States, not exactly the most catchy of titles, wrote that he had a head large enough to rest on the body of a giant. (laughs) (laughs) and his legs were so short that his orderly had to help him onto the saddle when he mounted his favorite war horse old whitey he had a big nose puckering full lips and a permanent scowl he was the most unmilitary looking official in the army and the higher he rose in the ranks the more careless he became in his dress his soldiers gave him his nickname old rough and ready because he rode before them wearing an old battered straw hat and a long linen duster looking rough and ready and again you know anything you do to earn that nickname, I'm kind of in awe of and certainly would have cut a really kind of particular figure. When he meets with James Polk, James Polk is going out the door. He is very unimpressed with Zachary Taylor, where he says in a letter that he was exceedingly ignorant of public affairs and of ordinary capacity. And again, I don't think Zachary was working overtime trying to dispel what people thought of him. And maybe that would play into, you know, certainly some of the way that he would come across. Now, you might know that Zachary will be our second president to die in office, and so we'll touch on that in season three, but it's really just a year and three months that he's going to be able to get anything accomplished. He'll have no policy proposals when he comes into Washington. And again, he doesn't really set the legislative agenda. He defers de- to Congress in almost every way. But by this point, we are now in a full boil when it comes to slavery's expansion. Certainly, the Mexican-American War had reignited a lot of those tensions, which you know might have been at bay temporarily, but always at a kind of simmer. And now we're back to these full-throated arguments about whether slavery should expand, who should get to make those decisions. And again, Zachary Taylor is a really kind of unique figure where he's elected by the Whig Party, which had been more of an anti-slavery party, but he himself owns slaves, which we'll talk about when it comes to his plantations throughout the South. He's born on a plantation in Virginia, so he doesn't really ever say, like, I'm not like (laughs) y'all, and he accepts their votes, but then is really going to be out to lunch when it comes to these really delicate decisions that are going to have a huge impact down the road. And if you ask me, you know, we really do bring in Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan for a full dressing down in terms of being out to lunch, and we'll get into that when we talk about them in the next few episodes. But Zachary Taylor also is going to contribute to this real sense of treading water on this topic, where you know where you would want a president who's going to speak forcefully on the issue, and none of them cover themselves in glory, but that includes Zachary Taylor. The Compromise of 1850 will be starting to be articulated when he dies, and Zachary will be avidly against it, avidly against this compromise, even vowing to veto it if it came across his desk. The Compromise would have allowed for California to become a state as a free state, but all the other states made from the Mexican cession, which are those lands that were ceded by Mexico at the end of the Mexican-American War, to be open for popular sovereignty, allowing the settlers in states like my own, Arizona, to be able to decide. One of the controversies behind this notion was that there was no stipulation about how or how often that voting would take place, who would be involved. Who would be able to cast that vote? And would that be for always? You know, if they made a decision in 1850 in, say, Utah, would they revisit that every so often? Would they be able to overturn it down the road? None of that is spelled out and purposely so. In addition, the Fugitive Slave Act will go into effect, requiring any runaway slaves to be captured and returned, even in northern states, at a time when we're talking about the Underground Railroad and the idea that for a lot of people who were on the abolitionist front will be looking to aid those slaves in Now legislation will be saying, you are going to get convicted if you're helping with that. A lot of times it would be looked the other way when that occurred. Finally, they would be abolishing the sale of slaves in Washington, D.C., which again is pretty galling when we think about our nation's capital having people being sold in auction. But that was happening all the way up until this compromise when it comes to Zachary living in the executive mansion, like Polk before him, he will bring his own slaves from his plantation and just kind of follow in James Polk's lead on that note. Knowing that visitors to the mansion at that tumultuous time would view Taylor's imported slaves with anger, this president will keep his slaves on the upper levels of the mansion and out of public view. And it is actually very likely that they lived in the attic, and you gotta imagine how, again, ungodly that would be in the summers. It is unconscionable to my mind, and again, just really speaks to their mindset at the time. Zachary really didn't think anything of it. He knew it was enough that it would gain a lot of criticism, and probably from his own party, by the way, but it's not going to be enough for him to say, you know, maybe we could do without. Maybe I could actually pay my employees here. Now we turn to the homes. And in Zachary's case, we'll be talking about three different ones, one of which is surviving and one has a commemoration. The other is completely gone. Zachary and his family had moved to Louisville when he was young, living in a 12-foot square log house on 10,000 acres. Eventually, the cabin would become slave quarters as Zachary's father built a home to appear much like his Virginia home that they had left behind. Zachary and Margaret will be married in that house, called Springfield, in 1810, but they were moved by the military to far-flung locales like Florida, Minnesota, Ohio, and California. Zachary attempted to retire to Springfield in 1815, but eventually will move to Mississippi in 1820. On the National Parks website, they list the Zachary Taylor's house is a two-and-one-half-story brick building. The slightly projecting original section dates from around 1790, consisted of two rooms on the first and second floors. Sometime probably between 1810 and 1829, an extension to the east of the house provided two more rooms on each floor and a broad central stair hall. A two-story wooden porch was attached to the rear of the house. Springfield has stayed in private ownership, retaining much of its original shape and condition, though a 1974 tornado will strike nearby and sets any refurbishment efforts back. The owners filled the home with tailor memorabilia and artifacts from the era, and they opened the house rarely, but did. I do have pictures of it in Houses of the Presidents, so the previous owners were open to letting people come inside. Again, I don't know how frequently, but then the new owners, it's a private home, and I guess that's their business. Part of the property that had been that 10,000 acres will be used to build the Zachary Taylor National Cemetery, and there will be houses built around the Springfield Plantation House, and Zachary, of course, is buried on that property. In Rodney, Mississippi, the Taylors lived at Cypress Grove Plantation, a 1,900-acre farm where they lived for seven years, The farm was operational with 81 slaves on the property, and the main crops were tobacco, corn, and wheat, but Zachary will let the overseers manage the property and kind of has to look the other way when they go whole hog into cotton, and that will be where he gets a lot of that money. His home will feature a large library running contrary to all the stories of his illiteracy, and then a colonnaded veranda and that's usually how they described it. The home was sometimes called Buena Vista as a tribute to his service in the Mexican-American War. After Zachary and then Margaret dies, the land and the slaves were sold, and the home will cave in during the 1920s when the Mississippi River will flood, and that will erode the rest of the property, causing all of it to disappear to the Mississippi River. There's nothing there. The Taylors then move to Baton Rouge, where they will be right before he gets elected president. They'll live in a four-room cottage on the spot where the state capitol now sits. The home was referred to as well as Buena Vista, and he was in Baton Rouge when he'll be drafted to run, somehow reluctantly. There's a marker on the site now which reads, Old Rough and Ready, America's 12th president, lived on this site in the home pictured above. He called the cottage Buena Vista after his famous 1847 victory in the Mexican War. The pale horse featured was Taylor's favorite whitey. It would later graze on the White House lawn and eventually be buried near his master. There's another marker nearby that says Zachary Taylor, U.S. Army General and 12th President of the United States, known to Americans as Old Rough and Ready, and who lived for a time some 200 yards southwest of the spot. Now, when it comes to visiting, this is going to be the first of several in season two where I just haven't been able to go inside. I haven't been able to stand on the grounds. It kills me. I have to be very clear, but there's only so much I can do. Will I be pulling strings for the rest of my life trying to get inside these homes? You can count on it, but some of them are just out of my league. When I went to California a few weeks ago with Andrew Alexander we tracked down where the Reagans had lived in Bel Air. I visited where Richard Nixon had lived in San Clemente. And those are just like crazy homes buried behind gated entrances and the odds of me being able to get inside are slim. Does it mean I'll stop completely? No. We'll see what happens. So you'll want to (laughs) keep updating this page as time goes along. And hopefully I'll be able to do this at some point in my life, be able to go inside. I will include photos of the different homes on the website. And again, in Houses of the Presidents, they did get to go inside, and so there are images from in that home. When I went to Zachary Taylor's grave, this was the beginning of visiting the president in 2015 at the AP reading, where I wanted to just get away for the evening and track down Zachary Taylor's gravesite, and you could see the home from a distance. I wasn't on this jag yet, where I had to go to every home and do my selfie in front of it, such as it is, but um, I did see it from a distance, and so I do have a picture of that. When friend of the pod, Andrew Alexander, went to Louisville a few weeks ago, he did get a picture in front of it, and so sent me a photo of the signage in front, and so definitely want to track that down and take one of my own, and again, I'll just spend the rest of my life trying to get inside as well. I did also want to be shouting out the Zachary Taylor project, which was created by a Yale student named Cameron Coyle, who had as a teenager started a project where he wants to commemorate the life of Zachary Taylor. As you found with this podcast, you know, there are no presidential sites. There's no repository for Zachary Taylor content anywhere in the country, not at his gravesite, not at his birthplace, and certainly not at his home, unfortunately. And so, figuring out a way to rectify that. And as Zachary Taylor is like not maybe one of the presidents that most people come like does not come to mind when people think of great presidents or somebody to research more about. And because he served so briefly, you know, maybe they just don't know enough about him. And so I did want to shout out the efforts that Cameron has been making to try to bring more attention to Zachary Taylor and his contributions from the military angle at the very least, right? That there is so much uh Important work that was done, and then just learning more about them. you know, I don't know that you need to come down in one way or the other and make these kind of grand decisions about whether or not a person is good or certainly a presidency is great, but you know certainly understanding a little bit more about where they fit in and 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 what those times would have been like. so like I said, I'll try to find a way inside the home at some point. <laughs> we'll see maybe there will be an open house someday, maybe that's the goal but I uh, certainly want to see these sites. I definitely want to get to check out the markers at Baton Rouge. That'll be something I'll check out at some point. Maybe get you a pick from the banks of the Mississippi, from that former home at Cypress Grove, And then any of the other places that he lived, I'll be trying to track down over the years. Now, what does this all tell us about Zachary Taylor? Again, he's a man who really didn't have a set home for so long. You know, he had a place where his wife and his children were. But in terms of who he was, it really is those battlefields and those places where he is rising through the ranks as an army official, and so when it comes to his homes, you know, they tell part of the story, but certainly not the whole thing, and there's, again, not one central repository that is even trying to tell his entire story, which, again, is something that we are desperately trying to find with each of these presidents and and how they are interacting with the world around them the certainly the location around them with Zachary Taylor not having a set home or a set repository for his stuff you really don't find these towns that claim him these places that are going to be dedicated to his memory everything that's associated with him is his service on the battlefield there's really nothing dedicated to who he was as a president and so he is unique in that manner I did make the effort to visit the Zachary Taylor home at Springfield. I was on my way back to Arizona. This was uh, August of 2022, and I stopped in Louisville. I hadn't gotten a really good picture of the gravesite, and I really wanted to check out the home very close by shout out to the Instagram site Zachary Taylor Project and its owner Cam who has been a really good proponent of doing something more to honor Zachary Taylor but he had visited the site and so it reminded me that I really wanted to like drive by and so right after going to the grave site I drove just around the corner not very far away. When you pull up to the property there is a gate that has Springfield and the National Historic Site on it but the gate is blocking a driveway and the rest of the house you're able to see from the street and so I I parked my car, got down. I'm not lingering or anything like that. I just wanted to get out, get a photo of me in front of the sign, you know, my standard photo. And if you look back to what the site had looked like before, I only had a photo that I had found online from the street. And so this was really important to be able to (laughs) to give me those same photos of all the different sites. And this was one to check off the list. I didn't really get to see too much. You get the standard issue front of the house pick, but that was about the extent of what we're able to see. I do know that the owners are keeping it updated and doing a really good job by Zachary Taylor, and hopefully someday down the road we'll be able to go inside. But it is really cool that the home is well cared for and that we're able to drive by, get a photo of it. The sign in front reads: Colonel Richard Taylor, Virginia veteran of French and Indian War and the Revolution, built original part of Springfield circa 1790, boyhood home of son Old Rough and Ready Zachary Taylor (1784-1850), to 1850. veteran of 18 and Black Hawk Wars, Mexican war hero, and 12th U.S. president, 1849-1850. to Zachary's daughter, Sarah Knox, married Jefferson Davis, future CSA president. Son Richard was confed general. Now, I also want to check out some of the presidential sites of Zachary Taylor when it comes to his home in Baton Rouge, for instance. There's a marker that I'm going to try and knock out, but this was really cool to be able to check this one off the list. But with that, we will turn our attention to his vice president and successor in Millard Fillmore in his home just outside of Buffalo at Aurora. And just like with Zachary Taylor, he'll have a couple homes, one that is still around and then one that is, of course, torn down. So you won't want to miss that episode next week remember to be checking out the website at visitingthepresidents.com, where I have links to readings, and for this week, I, I definitely want to direct your attention to the enslaved households of Zachary Taylor, as well as some of these other people who've done blog posts or other commemorations of some of the other homes for Zachary Taylor. There's also photographs, and normally I have photographs in front of those homes. I don't have anything to share with you this week, but I have images of those historical places. There's maps, and then, of course, recommended readings for Zachary Taylor. For Taylor, I recommend, and the one that always comes up is Jack Bauer, not that Jack Bauer, but K. Jack Bowers. Zachary Taylor, Soldier, Planter, Statesman of the Old Southwest, John S.D. Eisenhower, who wrote Zachary Taylor, and then the book that I just found in a bookstore not too long ago, Old Rough and Ready, Zachary Taylor, a biography by Silas B. McKinley and Silas Bent, and I really liked it you know, sometimes you get these older books and it's easy to dismiss. We want, you know, the newer interpretations and to kind of look at them and the focus that we get post-1970, 1980. But sometimes it's interesting to read these old narratives and understand how they get set in place and what we understand, what people are bringing to those discussions, and how some of those perspectives get really kind of entrenched. And so I definitely recommend checking out books like that from time to time. As always, with season two, I recommend Houses of the Presidents, Homes of the Presidents, and Away from the White House. Unfortunately, Zachary will not get away from the White House in his term. And then William D. Gregorio's The Complete Book of the U.S. Presidents. And I also have been reading from Joshua Kendall's First Dads when it comes to how the presidents behave as parents. Any support you can be providing to help get the word out about the podcast is greatly appreciated. Liking and subscribing, as well as writing a review, please write a review. That would be the best thing possible at this point. And then you can also be donating if you're so inclined. And again, as I'm gearing up for summer 2022, I'm going to blow it out, and you'll get to follow all along on the website. And as well, I'll probably do an update on the podcast. As we are getting closer to mid-season, do be thinking of questions that you might want to ask for a question and answer episode. I loved our episode that we had last year, and so hopefully talking about the homes. is getting your mind in that direction as well for this year, so be thinking of those, and I'll put out the call here in a few weeks. With that, let's get in our cars, and I look forward to seeing you out there as we continue to visit the presidents. See ya!